The psalmist writes, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Father God, we thank you for your eternal and certain word. We ask now that as we spend time thinking about it together, you would enable us to understand it rightly, to understand you rightly, and to apply it to our own lives. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, people's attitude towards the truth is changing in our culture. And there's recent evidence that illustrates that change. It suggests that generation by generation, we're becoming more and more comfortable with lying. So according to a significant piece of research carried out in 2018, 61% of people who were born before 1946 were of the view that it was wrong to lie. 61%. But of people born between 1984 and 1998, those classed as millennials, that number dropped to 42%, from 61 to 42. It's quite a shift. Now, of course, the irony of a survey about lies is that many of us don't actually trust statistics. So you can take those figures with a pinch of salt if you like. Um, but regardless of what you think of those stats, our culture's relationship to truth is changing. Uh, there's even a new word to describe how that change has taken place. It was the winner of the 2016 Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year, post-truth feels more like two words than one to me, but what do I know? Um, To use it in its right context, we live in a post-truth era. All of which suggests that our relationship to truth is, well, more relaxed perhaps, or to be a bit more pejorative, sketchier. And it perhaps goes some way towards suggesting that lying, well, it might be increasingly acceptable in our culture, And it might even be something to be expected. But if that's true, if lies are no longer such a big deal in our culture, let me ask you this evening, do lies really matter to you? For example, what is your gut reaction when you hear a politician or a business leader lying? Do you shrug your shoulders and accept that it's just part of life in a post-truth era? Or does it irk you? Well, let's get a bit more personal. How does it make you feel when you find out that someone has lied to you or lied about you? Perhaps it's someone spreading false stories about you at work so that they can clamber above you on the career ladder. Maybe someone you've relied upon you've trusted, turns out to have been stringing you along the whole time. See, despite what polling data might suggest, despite what the Oxford English Dictionary might suggest, our visceral reaction to lies and deceit shows that we care very, very deeply about truth. 
And the reason I mention that tonight is that when the author of Psalm 120 thinks about lies and deceit, well, he reacts just as we might. Just look at how the psalm begins. Verse 1, in my distress, he says. Or on to verse 2, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. See, deceit and lies don't rest easy with us, and they didn't rest easy with the author of Psalm 120. Now, uh, we're beginning a series in Psalms 120 to 134 this evening. We'll be dipping into and out of that series on Sunday evenings over the next few weeks and months. Um, And you might have noticed as Craig read Psalm 120 and Psalm 134 a few minutes ago, that they both bear the same title. A Psalm of Ascents. Uh, that's the title given to all of the Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. Those titles weren't added later, uh, they're part of the original text. And they signal that these Psalms were compiled as songs to be sung on the road. Uh, they're they're travelling songs. They were sung by God's people on their ascent, funnily enough, uh, on their ascent, their way up to Jerusalem probably for three big annual festivals where they would gather together with God's people in God's place, Jerusalem, to remember how good he had been to them in the past and to bring praises to them for how good he was still being to them. So we might think of the Songs of Ascent as like a Jerusalem playlist or if you're from a slightly older generation, a Jerusalem mixtape. They're the soundtrack to the journey. Now, the reason that we'll find them to be so relevant for us today is that God's people are still pilgrims, and the Christian life is still a journey, not a directionless journey like pop spirituality would have you think, nor a journey to the physical Jerusalem like those first pilgrims faced, but a journey to a new Jerusalem. That's the ultimate endpoint for Christians, a new Jerusalem or a new creation the Bible speaks of, where God will have remade everything that is broken in this fallen world, where we will gather with God's people, we will sing God's praises for how good he has been and how good he is, and enjoy him forever. Now, thinking of the Christian life as a journey makes it sound like one big adventure, doesn't it? It sounds pretty exciting. But as we'll see in the Psalms of Ascent, as we'll see even this evening, the journey to Jerusalem for the first pilgrims wasn't a walk in the park. And we'll see that in a pattern that repeats itself throughout uh, all the Psalms of Ascent. The the pattern, it's a three-psalm pattern. It begins with a psalm about pilgrims facing difficulty on the journey. And that's followed by a psalm of assurance about a powerful and a good God And then the pattern concludes with a psalm about the safety and the goodness of the destination, Jerusalem. That's the repeating cycle of the psalms of ascent. And so as the first song of ascent, the first psalm of ascent, Psalm 120 tells of the first difficulty that God's people faced on the road towards Jerusalem. That difficulty, as we've already thought about, is lies, deceit, and their devastating effect. So that's something we're going to give some time to thinking about together 
this evening. I should say there's a service sheet available in the link just below the, uh, the video on YouTube. Um, and if you access that service sheet, there are some headings that might give you a sense of where we're going to go together this evening. So firstly, the first heading on the service sheet, being surrounded by lies and deceit can be painful. Now, we don't actually know exactly what deceit and lies the psalmist was subject to in Psalm 120. The psalm doesn't tell us. But we do know that whatever they were, they were serious enough and they were painful enough that the psalmist felt the need to be delivered from them, rescued from them. It's quite an extreme reaction. But I wonder if you can empathize with it. Lies can be devastating, can't they? We thought about a few examples just a few moments ago. But it isn't just the betrayal that hurts, the betrayal of being lied to or lied about. It's often the consequences of the betrayal. See, try as hard as you might. People have already formed opinions of you based on what they've been told, even if what they were told wasn't true. Or the trust that took years and years to build is shot to pieces like that, gone. See, it's common human experience that deceit and mistruths feel painful and feel horrible. But whilst that's true in a general sense, for it's interesting that lying lips and a deceitful tongue are the first troubles for pilgrims on their way towards Jerusalem, isn't it? See, of all the, the pressures that God's people might be subject to on the journey, we might not expect lies to be quite so far up the list. But actually, lies and deceit aren't so much of a boat from the blue as we might think. See, right before Psalm 120 comes Psalm 119. Funnily enough, I can count. Psalm 119 is 176 verses long. It's an absolute whopper of a psalm, really, really long psalm. And it's all about God's people loving God's word, the Bible. Being exhorted to cling to the truth of God's word. God's truth, says Psalm 119, is the natural habitat for God's people. And so, for example, Psalm 119, verse 163, Psalmist writes this, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. See how those two things are presented as being opposed. Falsehood is presented as being the opposite of God's word, God's law. And all of that means that whilst lies are destructive genu generally, and, and we know that to be the case from our own experience, for God's people, one of the particular difficulties we'll face on our journey is hearing God's truth being misrepresented or twisted, or truths about God being misrepresented or twisted. Now, what might that misrepresentation or twisting look like? Well, it might look like the God of the Bible being portrayed as a bigot or as a prude or as a tyrant. Those portrayals of God are quite commonplace in our culture, in our media, and I guess they might sound quite familiar to some of us. And the least we can say is that it feels very uncomfortable when we hear those things being said of our God because, frankly, they're not true. 
or that kind of misrepresentation or twisting might look like a twisting of the truth about God's people. Hearing someone misrepresenting the Christian faith, maybe so that they can persuade people that the Christian faith is for people who are superstitious or judgmental or fundamentalist or old-fashioned or irrational. I've been portrayed as being all of those things as a Christian and far more besides. And if you haven't, let me tell you, it can feel pretty horrible. See, the relationship God's people have with God's truth makes sense of why lies are such a big deal for pilgrims on the journey. And it makes sense of why the psalmist feels as he does about lies and deceit. Verse 1, in my distress. Being surrounded by lies and deceit can be painful. Now, it can be kind of cathartic or freeing to acknowledge and to speak openly about the the pain we experience when people lie about us generally or misrepresent our faith or misrepresent the God we believe in. But when you've really felt the kind of distress that the psalmist is talking about, well, catharsis doesn't quite cut it. We want justice. We long for things to be put right again. And actually, that's where the psalmist goes next. That's our second point this evening. Being surrounded by lies can be painful, but be assured, deceit will ultimately be dealt with. Just have a look at verse 3 with me again. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Now, I guess most of us are familiar with the phrase, he'll get what's coming to him or she'll get what's coming to her. I guess some of us may even have uttered it through gritted teeth ourselves. Well, in verse 3, the psalmist addresses the deceitful tongue as if it's a person in its own right. And the question he asks deceitful tongue is effectively this. Deceitful tongue what do you think you've got coming to you? The answer isn't long in coming. Verse four, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now I'll confess that I'm not an expert in ancient Eastern horticulture. That might surprise some of you. I'm not really an expert in anything for that matter. But I'm told that wood from the broom tree was renowned for burning particularly hot and burning particularly long. And so the purpose of both of those pictures in verse 4, the sharp arrow and the very hot coals, is to convey that there will be a reckoning. Deceit will one day get what it deserves. Pierced with an arrow, consumed by fire. And what seems to have gone unpunished will be held to account. Now that's true generally of all lying and all deceit, whether you're one of God's pilgrim people or not, God will ultimately hold all lies and all deceit to account. There will be justice. But again, there's a particular application for God's people. Because for pilgrims, not only will deceit be judged and dealt with, not only will there be a reckoning, but part of the Christian hope is that in the new Jerusalem, the truth, God's truth, 
will set the agenda. And so the prayer of verse 2 will be answered. There will be an ultimate deliverance. That is the promise for the pilgrim. No more lies, no more deceit, only truth. Now let's take a step back for a moment and have a think about what all of that means for us now. Well, one, one big implication or big application of that truth is that because God sees all lies and deceit, and because God promises that he will ultimately deal with all lies and deceit, we can leave it with him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, don't mishear that. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't call lies lies. And some lies are particularly harmful. Some lies perpetuate harm. And this isn't suggesting that as Christians, you somehow wash your hands of it and and sit on your hands. But it does mean that we don't need to be consumed by a desire for vengeance, for justice, to see lies get what they deserve here and now. Because that can become an all-consuming thing, can't it? The point of Psalm 120 is that we can trust that God will ultimately deal with all lies and deceit. Now, I'm conscious that that might well be uncomfortable counsel for some of us. Maybe because the lies that we've been subject to have caused quite so much pain and devastation. And because it looks like the liar is going to get away with it. And that feels so, so galling and unfair and unjust. No, says Psalm 120, those lies will get what they deserve. And they will get it from Psalm 119, a God who cares far more about truth than you ever have. Being surrounded by lies and deceit can be painful. But be assured, they will be dealt with. Now we reach the end of verse 4, and it seems as though the tension in the psalm has been resolved. So the final note ringing out is a triumphant one, that justice will be done. But the psalm doesn't finish there, does it? We carry on into verses 5 to 7. And maybe surprisingly, things move back from what seems to have been a major key into a minor key. I wonder if you noticed that. There's a reason for that. And it's because the journey isn't over yet. And that's our next point this evening. As pilgrims, remember where you live. Now, there are two different kinds of traveler in the world. Of course, there are no kinds of traveller in the world at the moment, but once lockdown is over and travel is allowed again, whatever that looks like, there will again be two kinds of traveller in the world. There's the first kind of traveller who arrives at a hotel or at a holiday house, and, and even though they're only staying perhaps for one night, immediately unpacks everything from their suitcase. All the drawers are full, all the hangers are used, they're keen to make their temporary destination feel as much like home as possible. That's the first kind of traveller. And then there's a second kind of traveller. And the second kind of traveller isn't quite as fussed with setting down routes in their holiday house or hotel. 
because they know that they're just visiting. This isn't home. And that means that they generally don't touch their suitcase until they need something out of it. And the result of that is that they spend a good chunk of their holiday wrestling with their case, trying to yank something wearable out of the bag without dragging everything else out with it. Now, as it happens, my wife and I each fall into one of those categories, opposites attract. They say, I'm not going to tell you which one is which. But in the final three verses of Psalm 120, God's people are actually portrayed as being a bit like that second kind of traveller. By that, I don't mean that they're messy and a bit disorganised. I mean that they're acutely aware that they're travelling, that they aren't at home. And in fact, the psalmist goes a bit further than that. See, the, verse, uh, the, the sense of verses 5 to 7 is that pilgrims will inevitably feel like they don't quite belong. Just look again at verse 5. Woe to me, says the psalmist, that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Now, Meshech was to the remote north of Israel. Kedar was a tribe based in the northern Arabian desert. Don't worry if you're geographically challenged, and if I might as well have said that in another language. Because the point is that they're quite far apart from one another. And so an equivalent might be being asked where you live, and answering that you live in Land's End and John O'Groats. It's physically impossible to live in both at the same time. So the author isn't lamenting the fact that he literally lives in either of these places. But while they were far apart from each other, they were also far apart from Jerusalem. And the point he's conveying is that he feels very far from home. He carries on to explain why. Verses 6 and 7. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist and God's people are acutely aware that they are different from the people they're living among. In fact, they're alienated from them. And then notice what comes next in the psalm. Nothing. It just ends. No resolution. No promise of God's justice on those who want war. Just a minor note ringing out. And again, there's a reason for that. See, it can be really painful being surrounded by lies and deceit, and so it's good to be reminded that in the new Jerusalem, deceit will be dealt with, we will be delivered from it once and for all. But even though that is true, it's still important that as pilgrims, you remember where you live now. You are sojourners, verse 5. You aren't home yet. And an indicator that you aren't home yet is that you're different from the world around you. You might even feel alienated from the world around you. Verse 7, you speak of peace, and in response, they speak of war. Now, for the psalmist and for the pilgrims who originally sang these songs, that might have been quite literal, that God's people were advocating for peace, but facing the threat of literal military conflict. But I think it was probably 
wider than that for the original readers and singers, and it's certainly broader than that for us. Because in the Bible, war isn't just a horizontal thing. It isn't just about people warring with one another. It's a vertical thing between people and God. And in fact, the Bible tells us that humanity's biggest problem is that we are all waging war. We are in conflict with God. That's our biggest problem. We've rejected him. We've rebelled against him. And that's what the message of Jesus is all about. An offer of peace, of shalom between you and God. And so what verse 7 envisages is pilgrims, God's people, in a foreign land, speaking of peace. Telling neighbours about peace, the wonderful, eternal peace of the new Jerusalem, where we will live with our maker, no longer at war with him. And yet the response to that word of peace being war, antagonism. No, thank you. Now, that was the sense from the reading that Craig read for us from 1 Peter 3 as well, wasn't it? Peter's letter was written long after Psalm 120. But what he says really closely reflects the experience of the traveler in Psalm 120. Let me just read a couple of verses from 1 Peter again. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll read verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Or in the terms of Psalm 120, always being prepared to speak of peace. Yet do it, says Peter, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, and listen to this, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See that pattern in First Peter, God's people holding out peace, holding out the reason for the hope that we have. And yet in response, Peter anticipates slander, being reviled, antagonism. All of which means that as confusing as pushback might be, Do not be surprised that when you speak a message of God's peace to people, they may well respond with war. Pilgrims, remember where you live. But while Psalm 120 ends in a minor key, the Psalms of Ascent don't. See that woe that Psalm 120 ends with, the sense of alienation. It reminds God's people of where they're living now, But it's also an indicator of where they long to be. They're homesick for Jerusalem. That is the subject of Psalm 134. It's a short psalm. We're not going to look at it in any detail this evening. But let me read a couple of verses from it again. Verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 134. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who made heaven and earth. See, the tension God's people feel at the end of Psalm 120 is homesickness. Because they're surrounded by deceit, lies, opposition. And in Psalm 134, well, we're reminded of the cure for homesickness. 
home, the security of Jerusalem, gathering together with God's people to sing God's praises and remember his goodness to his people. Now, what difference does any of that make to you and me? Well, firstly, if you're a Christian, it should hopefully make sense of your experience as a Christian. It helps us to understand why we sometimes feel alienated from the world around us, even when all we feel like we're doing is trying to speak of God's peace to people. It helps us to see that sense of alienation for what it really is. It's a longing for home. For that new Jerusalem where lies and deceit will be dealt with, where opposition to God's truth and God's people will be no more. That's the first implication. It makes sense of our experience and it makes sense of our longing. And the second implication is that the hope of that new Jerusalem spurs us on, on the journey. We sang that a few moments ago, didn't we? My hope provides me with a spur to help me run this race. I know my tears will turn to joy the day I see his face. We are journeying towards a wonderful destination. And so Christian, amid the trials and the setbacks and the pain of life lived as a pilgrim, keep pressing on in the journey and keep holding out peace even when you get war in return. Now, if you're watching or listening this evening and you aren't sure about the Christian faith, can I please just say that you're really, really welcome. We're so pleased that you've tuned in. And please do keep tuning in. It'd be really great if you could do that over the coming weeks. If that is you, then I wonder what you've thought of what I've spoken about this evening. And particularly what I've said about the hope that Christians have of a new creation, of a place where deceit and lies will be dealt with once and for all, and a place where truth will reign and we will live with our maker in peace forever. That is the hope of the Christian faith. And I do hope that you can see how attractive that is. But as we close, it's important you know that Christians aren't beneficiaries of that promise because they're particularly deserving. It's quite the opposite, in fact. See, whilst Christians may have suffered at the hands of lying lips and deceitful tongues, we are guilty of lying too. Whilst we may have spoken God's peace to people and received war in return, well, we were once at war with God and his truth too. And so we were beneficiaries of that promise of a new creation only because Jesus Christ suffered the kind of distress we've just read about in Psalm 120. Being misrepresented and lied about. He was bundled through a sham trial and consigned to death. When Jesus offered people peace with God, people responded with war. And in fact, they brought that war to bear on his own body. They crucified him. See, the, the new Jerusalem is our hope as Christians only because of Jesus' death on the cross that brought peace between us and a holy God. Let me put it another way. 
Because Jesus wasn't delivered from lies, from deceit, from war, from opposition, from alienation, from antagonism, because he wasn't delivered from any of those things, you can be. The invitation to this wonderful new creation is open to anyone who will turn from their rejection of him, will trust in him and his cross and treasure him. Perhaps you might do that for the very first time this evening. I very much hope that you do. Let me pray as we close. Father, we acknowledge before you that our experience on this earth can be painful. That it is common to human experience to feel the sting of lies and deceit. And that that sting is often even more acute for your people, for people who love your truth. We thank you and praise you that you are a just God, that you will see deceit and lies dealt with. And that for your people, not only will we see your deceit and lies dealt with, but we can look forward to an eternity where your truth will reign. And yet we acknowledge that even with that kind of vindication and justice promised, that as your people, we still feel homesick. Even when holding out the truth of Jesus, peace to a world who so need it, will so often receive war in response. Would you please assure us this evening that that is what to expect as life lived as pilgrims on the road to the New Jerusalem? And would our hope of that New Jerusalem be a spur to help us stay steady on the road to that final glorious destination? We ask all of this in the name of our Saviour, the one who has brought us peace with a holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.